Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? Can't you come out tonight? Can't you come out tonight? Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? And dance by the light of the moon. In 1946, that counted as harmonizing. Hops and box office flops. A place where we can celebrate the underdog films, the bombs, the disasters, the much maligned movies that have drowned in their infamy. So please sit back, grab a beer, and enjoy the show. Welcome back, folks, and thank you for joining us for the 89th episode of Hops and Box Office Flops, presented by RevengeOfTheFans.com. This is the Google Web's premier podcast dedicated to poorly reviewed and or financially unsuccessful films. Tonight, we get the rare treat of reviewing a movie that doesn't suck. Tonight's entry in our Hops and Holiday Flop series is 1946's It's a Wonderful Life. Hee-haw! Joining me on tonight's pod is Mr. Potter's loyal manservant, the Thunderous Wizard. Every time someone cracks a beer, the wizard gets his wings. I was going to go with erection, but sure, wings, wings, that works. And we've got the vice president of the Donna Reed fan club, Captain Cash. I, I would just like to say I'm really thrilled to be here. I'm going to try real hard not to do this voice all evening. <laughs> Thanks, Jimmy. And returning again is our resident drunken pharmacist, Mayor McCheese. Hee-haw! If you could manage to not murder children, that would be great. I will do my best as the local pharmacist. And I still don't understand why that dude yells hee-haw the entire movie, but I'll go with it. Yeah, it, it works. And joining us tonight is a special guest, Angel Second Class, the IT dude. Yo, gentlemen, the dude always abides. But yes, I was wondering about that damn hee-haw thing, too. It makes no damn sense to me. Every yeah. time a person opens a ticket, IT dude gets his wings. Hey, <laughs> and a hee-haw. Works and for a me. Uh, yeah. If you're drinking at home, anytime we say hee-haw, please drink. Or hot dog. I wish I had a million dollars. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me, Chumpzilla, on Twitter, at Chumpzilla8. Gentlemen, give the listener your shameless social media plugs. You can find me, at C-A-P-T-C-A-S-H, on most of your social media. You can find me at WriterTLK on Twitter. I am located at HBOF McCheese. I guess that'd leave me uh, the IT Dude 75 on Twitter. And you can find the pod on most of your socials at Hops and BO Flops. So that brings us to beer. And for tonight's pod, I've selected Creature Comforts Tropicalia IPA. Creature Comforts Brewing Co. is once again a Chumpzilla local. They are based out of Athens, Georgia. And this West Coast style IPA checks in with an ABV of 6.6%. And it pours a mostly clear orangish bronze color with a significant head. This beer <laughs> definitely, <laughs> yeah. It is a wonderful uh, life. Mm -hmm. And this beer falls into your hazy IPA category. It's got strong mango and citrus aromas, which definitely you can smell them as soon as you pop the can. And you definitely taste the tropical fruits, too. It's a fruity, juicy IPA. Um, but there's a little bit of hoppy bitterness in there and some pine notes. You know, what you would expect from a West Coast-style IPA. So I'll crack one right now. And I chose this beer for a specific reason. It's one of the beers we see Thor drinking in Avengers Endgame. Now, 
You might be thinking, but Uncle Chumzilla, we're not doing a pod on Endgame. And that's true. But I think the concept of a do-over is a key plot element in both Endgame and It's a Wonderful Life. Do you guys agree? I mean, yeah, kind of like, so what we're trying to say is that if George had all of the Infinity Stones, his snap would have been to just live his own life, though? Well, no, I mean, it's more like when Thor goes back to see his mom and, and, you know, Uh, he's trying to the future. He's trying to do, you know, he's trying to fix things to return them the way they were. So basically, you know, it's like Jimmy Stewart had the Infinity Gauntlet, snapped his fingers to end his life and then decided, oh, no, it's it's much worse now than if I had you know been there. So now I have to go on a time heist to get back. I feel like we're stretching this metaphor real hard, but yeah. I, I appreciate where you're coming from. I mean, I the get a question like, is if, if Potter had the, the uh, Infinity Gauntlet, would he have just gotten rid of George? Probably. And, and all the garlic eaters. Yeah. Which might be the strangest racial slur I've ever heard. It uh, certainly it's the strangest one we've had on the pod. <laughs> So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is not a bad beer. Um, it's not my favorite IPA, but I'll give it a two bad beer movie rating. It's a solid IPA, and I do enjoy it as a change of pace. Uh, I think I'm the only one drinking it tonight, so because again, it's a local Chumpzilla special, so I apologize, guys. But uh, yeah, yeah like, as a cheers. fun reminder, most of those Avengers movies shoot in Atlanta, correct? Wait, or there's actually yeah, they're not in space. They just been lying to me the whole time. The whole time. I feel so betrayed. I'm pretty sure Tony Stark lives in upstate New York. Yeah, this is such bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, if you've got a keen eye, you'll you'll catch a couple different uh, creature comfort beers in Endgame as well. Thor drinks more than one, but anyway, to the tale of the tape. It's a Wonderful Life is a legit American classic and a holiday tradition for many families across the country. My dad loves this movie and made me watch as a kid every year. And as a kid, I thought it was long, boring, and corny as hell. And it does check in with a runtime of 131 minutes, so it is pretty long. But to its defense, the plot spans from 1919 to 1945. So it covers a lot of ground. There are some Downton Abbey levels of time jumping and none of the cast changing their appearance at all. Yeah, a little bit. I think they're. I, just, I think they 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 go out of their way to make uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart look really skinny when he's younger. I think he wears more layers later in the movie. I'm I'm just gonna go out on a limb here, and Mr. Gower's not making it to post World War II. Mr. Gower was looking rough in 1919. Yeah, Mr. Gower is hanging on by a thread post like, World War One. Come on, that dude was high on opium in his back room, like out of his mind. He, he does manage it. to look a little bit worse in the darkest timeline section when he gets thrown out of the bar. But, hey, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, as an adult with kids and a family, this movie definitely hits different, as the kids say nowadays. But like many of the good movies we've done on this pod, It's a Wonderful Life was not a hit when it was originally released. And it remained relatively obscure for decades until it was rediscovered on television in the 70s when it fell into the public domain and was in heavy rotation around Christmas time on many local channels and PBS stations. What you're trying to say is this is the original cult classic film. Well, it's kind of strange. We'll get to it. But it did receive some accolades at the time it was released, but I think it was kind of viewed as like a high-concept thing and not like a super popular film. So it didn't like hang around in the contemporary period. It wasn't viewed as a classic at the time. 
but yeah, it it did gain a following later. I I was so I I feel like I've seen this movie at some point in my life, but going back and watching it again, it is really high concept for 1946, and we can talk about that with the opening. So I'll, I'll let you talk about it, but it's it's I get it. Yeah, and it's worth noting that this movie is sometimes referred to as being based on a greeting card. Uh, it was based on a self-published short story titled The Greatest Gift that was effectively mailed out as a holiday card to the author's friends and family. A copy of this story made its way to Cary Grant's agent, who then sold the story to RKO Pictures for 10 k uh, RKO, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. One million dollars, 1946 yeah. time. Yeah, so... Uh, <clears throat> RKO then offloaded it to director Frank Capra and his production company for the same 10K, hoping to capitalize on a three-picture distribution deal they already had with Capra's Liberty Films. Uh, so it wasn't like a super hot commodity. They were just hoping to, you know, well, here, here's the 10K we paid for it. You know, and if we get that back, we'll call it even, and hopefully we can distribute the film and make some money that way. And Frank Capra was kind of a big deal in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s. He'd won the Oscar for Best Director twice, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and... You Can't Take It With You in 1936 and 1938, respectively, and probably would have won a third Oscar for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939 if it hadn't been for some obscure Civil War movie starring Clark Gable. Whatever. Capra also, Capra also served as the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences from 1935 to 1939. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life was released in December of 1946 to mixed reviews, but it did manage to snag several Oscar nominations, including one for Best Picture, and of course, a pod favorite, Best Sound Recording. It was produced on an estimated budget of $3.18 million, and it earned a worldwide box office gross of $6.1 million, with about half of that coming from overseas. What is that in American dollars now? So adjusted for inflation, $1 million in 1946 is equal to $14 million in 2020. So, so three would be 45, 40. Yeah, I mean, let's round, round it up. You're 42 roughly million. a $45 million movie. RKO was on the record saying the movie lost about half a million dollars. And as far as modern day critics go, the movie is considered a legit classic and is almost universally acclaimed. Rotten Tomatoes scores it at 94%, with an audience score a point higher at 95 Metacritic has it raked a bit lower at 89%, with a user score a bit higher at 9.2. You can find the movie streaming on Amazon Prime and likely many other places for free as it will be aired by several networks slash content farms throughout December. Maybe you can catch it on Peacock or whatever. Also, be sure to watch the black and white version. The colorized version is a crime against humanity. Which is why it's on Prime right now. Both versions, both versions on Prime, but take my word for it, folks. Watch the black and white version. Did you say that this had a higher user score on IMDb than Santa's sleigh? Because I'm not buying it. It's shocking. I would also I I just, like to. I, I would also like to file a grievance. Zero electrocutions with stripper pole in this one. So I'm and zero I'm, muff diving. There's just a lot of aggressive nuzzling. I'm oh. simply saying it's, it's very aggressive. That if Clarence came down to earth and then chose to throw George into a hellhole while playing curling against him, this would be a better film. Or, or, or a very different film. Clarence shows up in the first quarter of Santa Slay and kills Nick and does us all a favor and then leaves and lets Claire take care of the rest of the movie. 
Oh my I'll god, wait, I just realized. Is is Clarence bloodshot? He might be. Here we go. I will tell you this. If Clarence shows up and kills Nick in the first 15 minutes of Santa's sleigh, he's definitely getting his wings. That's true. I can't recommend this movie enough. It is a great American film, a great Christmas movie, and while a little long for modern tastes, its themes and characters are timeless, and it still feels very relevant today. Also, Donna Reed is a smoke show, and who doesn't love Jimmy Stewart? I feel like if I knew more about Jimmy Stewart and his paramours, I'd be able to answer that. Like I, I told Mrs. McCheese, I still don't know who Jimmy Stewart is. I'm sorry. He's yeah. original Tom Hanks. How do you not know who Jimmy Stewart is? All right, keep saying that. It doesn't mean anything to me. I don't know one other movie or something that this Mr. Smith done. goes to Washington. Never seen it. Charlie the Corner. I've never seen this movie until last night. Like um, Jim Carrey based the first half of, of his career on his ability to do a Jimmy Stewart impression. Uh, he was also in several very popular Alfred Hitchcock movies. Rear Vertigo. View Window. Yeah. Or I'm sorry, not. Not rear, rear window. window. Rear window. Excuse me. Yeah. It's still got nothing. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I, I know, I know, I'm not correct, but Captain Cash, you're thinking about Cracked Rear View, which was his LP that he dropped shortly after this movie with uh, the song "Hold My Hand." So he's Scott Staff. He's gonna nuzzle so... your face the best <laughs> that the best that he can. I think that was a Hootie and the Blowfish joke. It was. Thank you. Oh man, jeez. It was okay, just so, like Scott Stamp. I'm coming in hot. I'm just right going to make a joke about you know Jimmy Stewart being a bit of a dated reference, and maybe younger viewers not knowing who he is. But heck, even that '90s reference is dated. Most of the listeners probably won't recognize it. Yeah, well, uh, tell that to Wagon Wheel. I'm sorry, my mom knows exactly who Jimmy Stewart is. <laughs> <laughs> Mine does I don't too. Even, I'm not sure how to respond. To that. Yeah. So let's get to the cast here, gentlemen. Uh, we've Beyond got Jimmy Stewart. the oh. aforementioned James Stewart as George Bailey, Donna Reed in her feature film debut as Mary Hatch slash Bailey. We've got Henry Travers as Clarence, the guardian angel, Lionel Barrymore. That's right. That's Drew's great uncle as the evil Mr. Potter. We've got to Ward... love the Barrymores. Just all of them. They're a lot of fun. He's great in this movie. He really is. His performance is one of the high points. It really is. That dude's a piece of shit in this movie. <laughs> you hate him. You hate him. And he's and the worst. That goes to Lionel Barrymore's excellent performance. You really do yeah. hate that character. We've got Ward Bond as Bert the cop and Frank Phelan as Ernie the cab driver. And let's just get it out of the way now. According to the Jim Henson folks, no, Bert and Ernie are not named after the cop and cab driver from It's a Wonderful Life. But you'll never be able to tell me that. And convince me otherwise. They are totally based on Bert and Ernie from this movie. Quick question. What's the need for a cab driver in a town that later he runs through in about five minutes? What is this cab driver's purpose? Uh, if if I may, my bigger question is, uh, did uh, Frank and uh, Ward ever share a kiss? Because if they did, very obviously based on Bert and Ernie. They do. Then, I listen, that's, that's what it is. Frank gives uh, Bert a kiss on the forehead at the little the honeymoon, honeymoon. scene, yeah. and then yeah, and you're then, right. And then That's the cop, it. Bert the cop, uh, you know, slaps his hat. It's it's Nailed a very it. touching scene. I I really enjoy that. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. I think Cash also, might be living out a fantasy here. Yeah. 
And I like to point this one out because it's probably one of the funner trivia facts about this movie. We also get a quick blink and you'll miss it cameo from Carl Alfalfa Switzer. It's the guy who uh, Jimmy Stewart wrestles Donna Reed away from at the dance scene. And then he goes to pout and open up the swimming pool on the dance floor. That's not really blink and you'll miss it. He's like, you know, he's got a good 45 seconds of screen time. Yeah, that's fair. But in a two hour and 10 minute movie. Although I would have had no idea it was Alfalfa. So, yeah. Yep, that is Alfalfa from our gang. Um, <clears throat> so that brings us to one-liners. IMDb describes this movie as follows. An angel is sent from heaven to help a desperately frustrated businessman by showing him what life would have been like if he had never existed. I think that sells the movie a little short, but it definitely covers the most fantastical turn it takes. Yeah, I mean, that's reasonable. I mean, I'm going to tell you, this movie is a Christmas carol, but instead of visiting Scrooge, the ghosts visit Bob Cratchit. Yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. Uh, IT dude, what do you have for us? Uh, how about a good old-fashioned story about how being a good person can really save your ass in a pinch? That checks out. And I think, to your point, IT dude, that's something that the IMDB description leaves out. The fact that he, it's not so much just what he does that saves himself. It's the fact that what he's done throughout his entire life is paid back by the community. There, well, there's, that's a, that's a big, that's more important than the angel thing. In my opinion, it's more important that the community rallies around, you know, him in his time of need. I'm just going to throw it out there. The angel's a useless asshole in this movie. He nearly gets him <laughs> shot in the head. <laughs> yeah. We get a little police brutality there. Uh, I, so, I do want to talk about how ineffective and strange it is that God and, I guess, Joseph have chosen to send this fuck-up angel. But let, like, go ahead. I yeah, can do, let's, we'll let's get, get the Let's get the one sentences. Yep. Mr. Wizard, what do you have for us? If you think IMDB sells this short, I'm just going to go with, I haven't had this much Charleston in my life since Dude Love was on the scene. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get that reference, but I think it must be funny. Terrific. I uh, I I assumed it was that he enjoyed the fine taste of a Charleston chew. No, it's definitely no. Awesome. Nah, damn it! Is Sorry. it a Slim Shady joke? Whatever. Yeah. All right, Mary McCheese, what's your one-line description? I I'm sticking with what I texted last night. Is good guy George has an existential crisis when his dipshit uncle loses eight grand, which is roughly over a hundred thousand dollars in today's money, in the stupidest way imaginable. Fucking Uncle Billy. <laughs> Uncle Billy like, got some problems. Yeah. Why, why are you letting that guy handle that kind of money? I mean, you give that guy a do-nothing job where he can't fuck it up. But anyway, so here's mine. It's a Wonderful Life is a fantasy tale highlighting the importance of one man's life to those closest to him. Well, what I can say is, is if you're looking for a stronger example of what this movie does, it's called Click, starring Adam Sandler. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're going to get us on some sort of hit list produced by AMC if you if you think Click is better than this film. I will respectfully disagree with that statement, but I respect your your uh, freedom to have that opinion, Thunderous Wizard. Well, I mean, given the track record of the last eight pods, there is a solid chance that we're going to get assaulted by one of the remaining Golden Girls for all of these jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag they can get it. Don't There's a remaining Betty golden White, girl. I, I'm sorry, Betty White. The greatest no, that's golden right. girl. Betty White is still with us. 
Well, it's I 2020, it, folks, so give it a week. Don't give it a you week. fucking put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we've already kind of talked about it, but let's get into the plot summary here for It's a Wonderful Life. The movie opens with a montage of prayers asking for help for George Bailey. We then cut to space where celestial beings are discussing the need to send an angel to aid George in his moment of need. Okay. So explicitly, it's the Christian God. Correct. They're praying to the Christian God. We get a celestial thing where it like a star cluster lights up and God talks and he talks with Joseph, which I'm not like, I'm not super up on my Christian mythology, but shouldn't he be talking to like Jesus or the Holy ghost? He's talking to like the dude he left to raise his kid. Yeah. The guy that didn't knock up Mary. Yeah. Well, uh, technically, with the Holy Trinity, you know, they would be talking to himself, so it wouldn't really work out that way. Let him explain that I, to the Christians. Well, nobody's yeah, going to accomplish normally that. Normally, I would probably <laughs> bash this movie a little bit for the overtly religious <laughs> stuff, but honestly, it really doesn't impact the movie all that much. Other it's, than, you know, the presence of a literal angel. Right, but they don't beat you over the head with Christian imagery or That's Christian true. mythology. It's 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 very much a fantasy type scenario with these Christian flavors to it. But it's not like a, it doesn't feel preachy, is what I'm trying yeah, to say. I, I would agree that that is completely fair. But this does bring up the important question of Joseph again. That's weird. Joseph and God are talking like, oh yeah, you know, uh, we heard about George Bailey. Very important. His life is going to make a big difference. Uh, we got to send some angel. Ah, I guess we send that fuck up. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. Get Clarence. He's a, he, what a fuck up. Yeah, oh, they you know, literally describe him as having the IQ of a rabbit, but he's extremely faithful, which I can't tell if that's a dig on people that blindly follow any kind of religious dogma, but I kind of think that was a subversive comment there that uh, our favorite people are the dumb ones that just believe whatever we tell them. <laughs> You know, another thing, just to be devil's advocate, he's not necessarily talking to Mary's Joseph. He could just be talking to another Joseph. Straight up any Joseph. Sure. Anyone would be better. Again, the movie doesn't focus that much on this. This is kind of like the very beginning of Predator when the spaceship flies by and the whole thing flies out. And it's like, you forget that's even part of the movie. (laughs) Does Does that track? No, that 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 tracks because I, like I remember seeing a, it's a wonderful life, and I do not remember this part at all. And I was like, "Yeah, wait it's, a fucking minute." It's a little weird. It, it's definitely more Star Trek than Mr. Smith goes to Washington. <laughs> what does God need with a Bedford Falls? Yeah, <clears throat> and so after they discuss this, and they do choose the dim-witted Clarence to be. George's guardian angel because he needs to earn his wings. Uh, they send Which him to adds Earth. It's like a really weird, like Clarence is in it for his own personal gain kind of thing. Right. And they've just basically said he's got all this faith, but they still won't give him his wings because he's apparently screwed up other missions where guys killed themselves. <laughs> I don't know. And also, I, I, I understand it's necessary to put the whole plot in perspective, but they're doing this explaining right off the bat and we don't even get clearance until i want to say an hour and 40 minutes in which it's an interesting movie because it definitely spends a long time on the run-up to george's actual moment of crisis it's non-linear in that sense because the movie literally opens with everybody praying for george at his moment of crisis right 
but we don't actually get to that moment again until yeah, more than halfway through the movie. They, they do some really... solid story building. They do some aggressive story building from the lead in until the crisis moment. Yeah, and frankly, you can cut this opening scene. You don't really need the setup. You could just start with no. the movie. This was like the dinosaur cartoon in the Super Mario Brothers movie. This is totally unnecessary. I, I think it's. I still think it's an interesting uh, element in the storytelling. Is it necessary? No, but I do think it's an interesting choice. But yeah, uh, but yeah it, it, it does feel different from the rest of the movie. Well, and recently we've been talking about a lot of movies that would have gotten better if you would have reordered it. And hopefully this doesn't ruin any questions later in the pod. But if you would have taken this scene and cut it from the beginning and spliced it in when he's hitting rock bottom and at the bar, I think it might. I don't know if it actually. Listen, I straight up disagree. I'm a big fan of the idea that you don't know Clarence is an angel at all until he starts to do stuff. You yeah. leave it somewhat ambiguous, but again, that's that's twenty twenty sensibilities butting up against nineteen forty. Well, I mean, I realize and, they filmed this in forty seven, but feels like forty six. And now that I'm thinking through it, I, now that I'm thinking through it, I think I'll actually walk back that statement because it, it works, and I don't I don't think reordering it actually makes it any better. I think I'm wrong, but with the, yeah, right, and I think, let's go I think on. come on, yeah, I think my final comment on this will be. Frank Capper probably felt like he had to explain something or people wouldn't get the movie. I think that's the problem. To your comment, Captain Cash, I think he's like, oh, you know what? People might not understand this if I don't make it very clear. So anyway, um, <clears throat> so they do send Clarence again to be the guardian angel for George to prevent him from throwing away God's greatest gift, his life. The space gods give Clarence a crash course on George's uh, youth. We flash back to 1919 for a look into George's childhood, and we see him save his kid brother, Harry, from drowning in a frozen lake, which causes George to lose the hearing in his left ear. We get a brief introduction to George's wanderlust and romantic rivalry between Mary and the more aggressive Violet. We see him prevent a drunken and grieving pharmacist from accidentally poisoning someone at his after-school job. Oh, uh, accidentally? No, no, no. I... I feel like the druggist got note that his son was going to die or his son had died and was trying to inflict that grief on someone else. No, no, no he was no, wasted. He was just sloppy. No, just yeah. not paying attention. That's, that's a hard disagree. I mean, he was real drunk or yeah, something. He, something. He, was he showed like, a lot of remorse once he realized that, that he had put the wrong uh, chemical. Once, once the he beat tablets. the shit out of his the kid that works in his store. Or so, yeah, once okay, dude. Shit out of George. I get child abuse I, I was okay then, too. but this, this isn't your kid. I also like how the general like label on the bottle is just poison. Poison. <laughs> Not an explanation of kind or matter. It's just it, this is a big old bottle of poison. Yeah, and as indicated, uh, the pharmacist was grieving the loss of his son who had passed away from a global pandemic. <laughs> <clears throat> well, while overseas fighting in World situation. War One, young George is kind of a dick. I think he might be the inspiration for Joshua Jackson's performance in D3. Just saying. We also get an introduction to Mr. Potter, the richest and meanest man in the county, and we get a taste of the film's main conflict. Mr. Potter is a cold-blooded capitalist with no regard for the working man and George's father. And George's father, in contrast, is a kind-hearted soul that knows there's more to life than just acquiring wealth. Quick notes from Uncle Chumpzilla. Lionel Barrymore's Mr. Potter might be the first movie villain I've legitimately hated. 
it's a great performance, and that character is a world-class asshole. Oh, yeah. I mean, name a handful of other people that elicit a visceral feeling of hate and disgust in their performance. It's a short list. The woman who plays uh, Umbridge in the Harry Potter movies would be one. Oh, God, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm there. During this movie, if you don't at one point during a Potter scene go, yeah, this piece of shit, then... <laughs> Yeah, he sucks. It's just a, just a test of your humanity. Spider. It's it's yeah. like a Voight comp test. Do you hate Potter? Okay, you're good. Ray finds just... Schindler's List. This is very oh, yeah, there you very go. high on my yep. list of detestable scum. Except that was a real dude, and he really was that awful. Why? Well, then he Ugh. plays it to perfection because That's true. he's a damn treasure outside of that. I'm sorry, I missed that. Was that Trump? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Mr. Potter is the proto-Trump. He is a slumlord, yes. Yep, yep. Fits. So we flash forward to 1928 to see a young adult George Bailey, inexplicably still played by Jimmy Stewart. Uh, first played again, by Jimmy Stewart. Be fair, this is where he first shows up. And yeah, like, yeah. No, 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 this dude is 18. It's cool. I was wondering <laughs> where they got the idea for Robert Redford to play his 17-year-old self in The Natural, and now I know. <laughs> so yeah exactly um right so now that we flashed forward we do get george again expressing his desire to travel and see the world along with an introduction to bert and ernie and an adult violet and i'm uh gonna go home and see what the uh, wife is doing again that's one of the funnier scenes in the movie and the comic timing between those three actors and violet perfect that's funny that's comedy folks and uh, <clears throat> we learn what George has been doing for the last four years. He's been working at the family building and loan. And now that his four years are up and his little brother's getting ready to graduate from high school, it's time for him to move on to college where he wants to go study architecture. We also get a great introduction to George's internal conflict. He can't bear the thought of staying in Bedford Falls and working in a crummy little office like his father does. And he's got grand ambitions and a strong desire to realize them. And... I really love that scene where he's at the table with his dad. That's another great bit of that uh, Sorkin-esque dialogue. George decides to attend his little brother's high school graduation dance, where he is reintroduced to the now 18-year-old Mary Hatch, played by a stunning Donna Reed. We get a mildly entertaining dance sequence capped with the gym floor opening up during the dance contest, resulting in most of the people falling in. And this leads to one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and that is where George and Mary walk home in clothes they had borrowed from the high school and have a nice little romantic scene with some pretty good comedic moments. And we also get the Buffalo Gal song that opened the pod. From here, the stage is set. We've been introduced to the main characters, and we've got a decent idea of their motivations. George, through a series of tragedies and whatnot, is forced to stay at home and work at the building and loan while his brother gets to go off to college. His brother also gets to go off and fight in the war. Which because, George can't do because, because he of his ear. Yeah. So, you know, all the way through, George has to sacrifice his dreams and ambitions so other people can realize theirs. All the way through, though, he's continuing to help people in the community, people that can't get decent housing or loans from the banks or Mr. Potter, but they can come to the Bailey uh, and Brothers building a loan to get it. So he's bettering his community. And, of course, he supports the war effort as well uh, from home. Uh, you know, and meanwhile, of course, he does end up marrying uh, Mary Hatch. Uh, and so they've shacked up. And at Got some point, kids. They have four. Well, I, 
I mean, I think I think there is an important scene to point out here because this is a lot. This is a plot heavy movie, but the scene where, um, what is is it Black Friday or Black Monday when the stock market crashed? Black Monday. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, yes, the, the, yes. The, the crash in 1921 is specifically referenced, and it shows it shows his humanity where him and his wife are leaving for their honeymoon, and instead they go back to the building and loan and give out all the money yeah. they had set aside to keep the community above water. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out, to, to your point, Mary McCheese. They exercise this point very well. He has the opportunity to be a very rich man. Because Mr. Potter offers him a job for $20,000 a year. He also has this uh, uh, Bailey town, which is essentially a Levitt town. He's built all these housing for lower income people. And he's he's not making any money on them because he wants people to live there. But he's just that good of a person. Like He's always putting others ahead of himself. And when he gets that job offer, he thinks about it for a split second. And he's like, you know what? Know what? You're an awful guy. Whatever this deal comes with, it comes with strings attached, and I won't do that. I won't sacrifice my ethics and my morals to be in line with you. You know, so you see it throughout the movie. Just as a quick fact check, uh, the Great Depression started on Black Thursday in 1929. Damn, Damn. close. You're close. No, no, you're close. Well, I I picked two of the five days the stock market's open. I just yeah. That's another great scene in this movie. The bank run scene is pretty fantastic. I do, I do enjoy that one, and it's a pivotal moment in the movie. And let's see. It here. also, it also continues to show how big of a big, uh, how big of a bag of shit Potter is because he calls him and he's like, "Tell him to come over. I'll give him fifty cents on the dollar." Fuck off, dude. <laughs> right. Truly, at, at the Great Depression, fifty cents on the dollar was a really good deal. I mean, if yeah, you think about it, realistic, better than nothing. Yeah. No. Um, but most most of these, and we're getting sidetracked, I'll keep it quick. Most of these small banks and loans were set up as loans between a community. It, it, I was putting my money in for the Thunderous Wizard. I was borrowing money from the Thunderous Wizard. So that's what Bailey pushes, and Potter is pushing it as big corporate greed guy versus small little peons that can give him the money and they can go fuck off afterwards. Yeah. So as you guys indicated already, Potter does offer George a high-paying job. But George smells a trap and turns him down. Uh, at this point, George and Mary start their family. World War II breaks out. As we indicated, George couldn't go over and fight in World War II because of his ear. Harry did. He joined the Navy and was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. And on Christmas Eve, Uncle Billy makes a colossal mistake when showing Mr. Potter the newspaper with Harry's award on the front page. He left the day's $8,000 bank deposit which is about $150,000 today, in the paper when he handed it to Mr. Potter. The timing couldn't have been any worse. The bank examiner is in town to review their books that very day. Damn it, Uncle Billy. This is going to lead to bankruptcy, scandal, and prison. I've been dumb with money before, but I've never put $120,000 into a newspaper and then shown it to my sworn enemy. (laughs) (laughs) I can't understate how big of a dipshit Uncle Billy is that he forgets that the $8,000 is in the paper he just hit the crippled guy in the chest with. 
And let's also be clear, Uncle Billy has done nothing in this movie up to this point that would make you want to trust him with more than like 20 bucks. Yeah, and, and maybe that's a fault on George. Like, don't send Uncle Billy to make the big deposits. Like, take it yourself. This is a lot of yeah, money. George, wow. George, this, of money. George, this one's uh, this is a you thing. You you make yeah. sure that money gets in the bank. I I, I I don't know what you mean. Uncle Billy was my my but father's brother. I got Uncle, I got another trust for Uncle Billy. Uncle Billy is so dumb. He has no idea where the money. Like, he can't remember. It's like when you lose your keys. And you're like, okay, where was the last place I saw him? He goes back to his office and tears the office apart. So he doesn't even remember leaving the office with $120,000 in nowadays money. I've always kind of thought there was something off about Billy's character. And we do see him pretty drunk at, at the beginning of the movie. I now suspect they were trying to signal to us that he might have been a, a bit of a booze hound. Yeah, wasn't he always drunk? Yeah, the wedding, he was pretty hammered, right? Yeah, he seems like he might be uh, a functioning alcoholic. As a man who runs a business, that's the kind of guy you put in charge of the big bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Functioning would not include wrapping $8,000 in a newspaper and putting it in a person's lap and then going, yeah. giving it where was money. that money? Well, and he might know. as well stored it in a dead fish and then lost it and been like, I have no idea. <laughs> He's probably using it to line his crow's cage. Oh, I forgot um, about the fuck it. We haven't even brought that up. What is that? Uh, it, it's a Frank Capra thing. He, he has that bird in like all of his movies, okay. uh, right. which is weird. Uh, again, it's that you know we get the whole celestial god speaking as a blinking star thing to explain the plot of this movie, but no one bothers to explain the fucking crow that just lives in the building alone. Wait, here's a question: Is is the crow's name going to be on the quiz later? It's not. Oh, okay. Ooh, well, the crow's name, name is the crow's name is Eric. Oh, Eric thank God! I was worried. But it was that's his Jim. real name, not in the movie. That's literally it's Eric the Crow. Well, yeah, but he has no name in the movie. Right, right. But but that's the that's that crow was the one that Frank Capra liked. He used Eric yeah. the Crow in his movies. Yep. Turn, turns out Uncle Billy was actually a guitarist in a band, and he was murdered in his loft with his girlfriend uh, by a group of uh, heathens. And then he came back as the Crow, but he drank so much he forgot what his mission was and just became a banker. So. I want to know what grunge metal from 1947 sounds like. A lot like, like Buffalo It actually sounds a Buffalo lot like Jimmy Stewart nestling his wife. Oh, gosh. Okay. So, what do you think Uncle Chris, Billy's you, blunder puts... Dave Grohl to do the cover of Buffalo Girls? Could we like yeah. pay for like a cameo for that, you think? Sure. Can't we, like, get, budget. Can't we like, get somebody to do it on Fiverr? Or, I don't know. That's what I mean. Yeah. What's, what's Chad Kroger up to? That's close enough. Nothing. Oh, God. He's up to absolutely nothing. <laughs> That's why you he's know, on Fiverr. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I can tell you this. Scott Staff is $1,000 on Cameo. <laughs> we want to get, get a GoFundMe going. You know, that's really tempting. And I'd say this is a Christmas gift to all of us to force Scott Staff to sing Buffalo Girls. <laughs> That'd be worth chipping in on. No, I want to get I want to get him to say hashtag get it and get it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's we we have so much more plot and questions. Let's yeah. go. No, we're, no, we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to start a GoFundMe. Let's move on. Yep. Yep. Okay. Uncle Billy's blunder puts George over the edge. He returns home a broken man, snapping at his family and yelling at his daughter Zuzu's teacher before turning to Mister Potter for help. George offers up the only collateral he has. 
a modest life insurance policy with only $500 of equity. Mr. Potter comments that he's worth more dead than alive. George leaves Potter's office to get a drink and contemplate ending it all. It's at this point George decides to jump off a bridge, believing he is, in fact, worth more dead than alive. Kind of heavy. Kind of heavy. Yep. And we'll talk about this scene maybe now. Uh, You do see George have a bit of a breakdown at the bar, and it's famously reported that he wasn't meant to be as emotional uh, in the script, but Jimmy Stewart had just returned from World War II. This is his first post-World War II film. He was more than likely suffering from some form of PTSD, and apparently the weight of the material and just his general mental state got to him in the scene, and he broke down and began to cry. That was not the script, but Frank Capra loved it and actually recut the shot to zoom in on George's facial expressions. And that's why people notice that scene gets a little bit grainy when it zooms in because they had not intended that to be a close-up scene. But again, he loved the performance so much he wanted to emphasize it. So before George can take the plunge, someone else jumps in first and George jumps into the river to save the distressed stranger. This is our introduction to Clarence Oddbody, George's guardian angel. At this point, the film takes a turn to the fantastic. Clarence grants George his wish. He gets to see what the world would be like if he had never been born. Potter takes over Bedford Falls. His brother died in that lake. Mr. Gower, the pharmacist, went to prison for murder. Violet is a raving lunatic. And worst of all, Mary is unmarried and has a job as a librarian. The horror. Minster. The horror. They refer to her as an old maid. Old maid. <laughs> At 23 years yeah. old. So, and she was wearing glasses and sensible attire. Circling back to the start of this uh, segment, do you think Clarence jumped in the water specifically to even prove further that George is a good guy and would save somebody? Or is he that bad yes. of an angel where instead no. of showing up on the bridge and talking to him, he, he fell in the fucking water? St- yeah, he explicitly states that's why he did it, because he knew George would save someone. He, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. I must have missed that. It was to be like, oh, look, like you're a great guy. You saved me. I'm a total stranger. Unfortunately, he didn't realize that George was doing shots of fireball for six hours straight. Yeah. Uh, Listen, fireball just makes you your truest self. If you were going to save someone, you'd save it. Drunk yeah, off your well, ass on Fireball. What is that? That bar is what? It's named like Martinis? Martinis, yeah. yeah. Martini. That's the before, guy's name. Before he, before he does his time switch, it's Martinis. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, he's in there. He's in yeah. there getting lit. Yeah, and as he leaves, you don't really see him drink all that much at all. You see him with a, a drink on the bar. But as he's leaving, he uh, Mr. Mar- car. Well, Mr. Martini also says to him, you know, oh, you know, George, you know, Mr. Bailey, why do you drink so much? You know, don't, don't, you know, don't stay like they or don't leave. You know, they're trying to prevent him from wandering off into the cold because they know he's hammered. So it's implied, but you don't see it. And that's uh, where he crashes his car, right? Doesn't he correct. crash his car into a tree right there? And that's yeah. he circles back later and the tree's not damaged. And the car is gone because he yeah. never lived. Yep. Uh, so it's also worth noting, in my opinion, that Pottersville is much seedier than the wholesome Bedford Falls. Uh, you do get a little run of the downtown and everything's different and changed and there's strip clubs and loose women. I, I mean, worse. It's different. I give you that. Uh, my, my biggest thing is 
we should highlight that we are 146 minutes into the film at this point. Like, we're not spending a lot of time in Bedford Falls before this is over. We spend, like, 15 minutes here. In Pottersville. I'm sorry. Yes, in Pottersville. Well. Yeah, but they, they also pack it full of enough visual cues to be like, hey, without Bailey around, the town goes to an absolute cesspool. I mean, I get that, but I'm saying everything prior to this was Act 1. Yeah, they kind of speed through Act 2. But here's something for you. In the unproduced uh, script for Zack Snyder's It's a Wonderful Life, George lets Clarence drown and then just goes and gets, like, obliterated in Pottersville. There's heroin scenes. It's nuts, man. It's super metal. So hopefully it gets made one day. To release the the Snyder Wonderful Life cut? George Bailey says, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) And he totally totally aggressively nuzzles Violet in Pottersville. And I guess I kind of skipped over this, but we do get a conflict where George does get into uh, Ernie the cab driver's cab and asks him to take him home. Of course, his home's not there. And uh, there's a whole deal with the house that he and Mary live in that I probably should explain because it's kind of a cute element of the movie. It's very the notebooky, I will add. But uh, for those of us who have not seen the notebook, what does that mean? uh, I I don't know. Jake Gyllenhaal uh, or whatever the guy. Ryan Gosling. He he fixes up an old house that he banged Rachel Evan Woods in or whatever. Don't, he puts some all, letters in a mailbox and I'm not gonna, else in another mailbox yeah, gets the letters. I'm not allowing you this internet cred. You told me you cried during the notebook because you knew people with dementia, and when the old people had dementia, it made you sad because you were reflective. So don't pretend like you're not a notebook guy. Oh, and Captain no. Cash, you fuck, you look like I, you've read the notebook, not only seen the movie. No, listen, that's my issue. The notebook falls in that weird black hole from late 2004 to the beginning of 2009 where i just i don't have a lot of pop culture references for western media but i've never seen lost anyway you don't have to that's what that's what i'm told we do get a great same with game of thrones though so it's cool there was only seven seasons so the the great thing uh, about this scene with uh bert and ernie is that we learned almost gets Today George was almost brought gets, to us by the letter C? No, it was brought to us by the letter N because George and Clarence almost get murdered. <laughs> we, we almost get an extra One, judicial killing. Two, two murders. Ah, 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 ah. This is where the movie gets real off the rails and the count shows up and you're just like, I have not <laughs> done enough fuck? drugs to get through this movie. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, uh, so George runs off into the night and seeing Mary in glasses is all it takes to convince George he wants to live again. And he returns <laughs> to the bridge and begs for his life back and his wish is granted. George, now back in his old reality, runs through the restored Bedford Falls and returns home to his family. George gleefully addresses the bank examiner investigators that are waiting for him in his living room and he runs up and reunites with his wife and kids. We learned that while he was away, Mary had informed the town and all of George's friends of his predicament, and they had all pitched in to cover George's $8,000 shortage, including a loan of up to $25,000 from his old friend, Sam Wainwright. Hee-haw! Hee-haw! Harry arrives, having left New York from his award ceremony early when he had heard his big brother was in trouble, 
And it's here we get perhaps the movie's most memorable line, a toast to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. And goddamn, that makes me tear up. I'm not going to lie. Every time. Every time. We blew past this, but I would just like to say, Mary as a librarian is way hotter than Mary in the good timeline. (laughs) I'd have probably just hung around. I can fix this. Donna Reed is equally attractive at all moments in this movie. Fair. Donna Reed is a very, very beautiful woman. And the fact that they thought, like, hey, glasses mean you're ugly was really an oversight. They they did that shit for literally another 60 years. She's hideous in those glasses. Oh, my God. Put her hair in a messy bun and glasses. Terrible. Terrible. In a tweed jacket. <laughs> Spinstress librarian. The horror. A single woman with a career. Ah. We also get a shot of Clarence's note to George written on his copy of Tom Sawyer. No man is a failure who has friends. The crowd gathered in George's living room breaks into song and Zuzu, his daughter, reminds us that every time a bell rings, an angel gets their wings. The end. Yeah, man. I I know you said that. And I'm not crying. I'm not crying, Captain Cash. You're crying. I know you said that the iconic line was to my brother George, the richest man in town. But it's either when a bell rings, an angel gets its wings, or I'm shaking off the dust of this one-horse town. I want to get out of here. I want to see the world. Oh, yeah, I'll but I think if you're a fan of the thing. movie, though, the line that gets you yeah, is, is to my brother George, the okay. richest man in town. Yeah, yeah fair, no, fair, it, fair. It, it, the angel wings thing definitely is very famous. iconic. Yeah, but oh, it's, yeah. it's not the line that I've never seen this movie. It's not the line that meant anything to me when it says to my brother George, the richest man in town, which is what they referred to the dad as earlier in the movie. And when he reads the book, I had like a series of mini strokes last night watching this movie. I had a total emotional breakdown. It was not good. That last scene is heavy because everyone comes in, they're, they're dumping money into this basket and you get this look on even Donna Reed's face where she's, She's even emotional because there's so much outpouring for me. Like they, none of them realized how much they were all loved by all these people and how, how rich they really were with their friends. Like, and, and there's a key thing in this movie too. And they beat you over the head with it is that Mr. Potter wants things that he can't have. And these things in that living room are the things that Mr. Potter can never have. He can't own those because those are gifts that are given to people who actually care about each other. Hence Captain Cash's description that this is a Christmas Carol, except, Bob Cratchit is the central character because he never gets the central lesson, which is, hey, if you'd stop being such a rich dick bag, maybe people would love you too. If you loved people, they would love you too. Like, he doesn't get that arc. Mr. Potter's just, you know, in the background somewhere, continuing to be an awful sack of shit. Yeah, to be fair, he never really gets his comeuppance. George tells him off a couple of times, but that's literally it. There's no consequences for Mr. Potter other than he doesn't get to shut the building alone down. And that was and, very and, disappointing. And see, and see George go to jail. I, yeah. I really wanted to see something happen to him. Maybe an explosion, you know, maybe, I don't I think, know. I think, he needed you know, something to happen to him. I'll Adam amend did. my joke about movies being improved by bloodshot showing up and killing major <laughs> amounts of the cast in the first 15 minutes. I think this is a case where we needed a little tacked on speed two post-credit sequence where like a yacht crashes into Bedford Falls and drops the anchor on Mr. Potter's car. 
I agree, but I, I think the move is at the very end, Clarence morphs into the angel of death and approaches Mr. Potter and does the Henry Potter, you are judge. And then we like drags him to hell. That's the move. Judge. We've established the Christian God is real. So judge. hell is real. Yeah, I, I have two outcomes I'd like to see. One is more realistic to the movie and one is more of a, a moonshot. The first would be that they somehow figure out that he knowingly got the 8,000 bucks and didn't report it. And he gets in trouble with the bank auditor, um, which it's more realistic. The second builds off of Captain Cash's Clarence shows up and we learn that Bristol Falls overlooks the ocean for some reason. And he just pushes Mr. Potter's wheelchair down a big old road into the ocean. <laughs> like a ramp. Like, yeah. Like essentially on fire, one of those. Like red dragon style yeah freddie loves scenes where going over it's the clarence like kind of giving him the business and potter's like who are you what are you doing i'm an old man and he's got the blanket over his legs and then just straight down the hill to keep it with the movie shouldn't he take him to the basketball court and just open it up and then close it and it smashes him in the pool <laughs> like okay hold on here's my crossover here's my crossover they open up the pool it's not a it's not the pool it's hell Goldberg comes out. <laughs> Spears okay. the old okay. man. Spears the old man into hell and then scene. All wow. right. I've got my take on the ending now wait, wait, based wait. on your comments. I would just like to add that when he gets to hell, he is met by the sugar plum fairy who starts to eat her own hair. <laughs> She's like, you're the rich asshole, aren't you? Realm. <laughs> So I think my alternative ending to it, or maybe a post-credit stinger, would be Bert the Cop showing up at Mr. Potter's place and saying, I am the law, and then shooting him. You're a judge. You know, ironically, they're from, what was it, 1934 to 1954, there was a motion pictures production code that actually stated in the code that all these movies agreed to that the villain could not profit from any sort of malfeasance throughout the whole thing and oh, at yeah. the end would either have to, you know, somehow either return the money or or make good on it. And, and this movie actually went completely against that motion picture production code. In 2020, we missed that the fact. Danny Trejo law. Yeah, and they completely missed the fact that, yeah, Mr. Potter keeps the 8000 bucks, Keeps it and doesn't say a damn word. We call that the karma Houdini. Yeah, but theoretically, you could argue he didn't get the building and loan, but he definitely got to keep the eight grand. Yeah. <laughs> which again, which was a hundred something fifty thousand dollars, or hundred and thirty, whatever. It, uh, inflation varies. Close uh, enough. That, I, I view that to be somewhat of a plot hole. I'm not gonna lie. That, but that was that sucked. I really wanted him to get stuck for that. But you know, I take that back. That's not a plot hole. I think that's actually. The fact that they don't address it, 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 there's just enough time in the movie at this point. Whatever, it doesn't matter. But the re the reality is, he would have totally just kept, he would have kept it. That's very realistic. He would have kept it, and never said a word. Yeah, that's he's I mean, a that's, piece of shit. Yeah, because because fuck, why would he? There's there's literally nothing to be done there. I think it also it speaks to the profound concept that Mr. Potter's untouchable to these people. They really can't fuck with him yeah. uh, any more than they already are. So they're surviving and thriving is the only way they can fuck with Mr. Potter. Fair? Fair. I just thought this movie was really ahead of its time in terms of a realistic 
portrait of what America actually is for many people. Yes. It wasn't idealistic at all, even though the main character is very idealistic. But the central antagonist uh, is hauntingly familiar to what you see every day. I agree. I think this movie is a bit ahead of its time. And I also think that that does speak to the timeless aspects of some of this plot and the characters. But before we get any further into our discussions of the movie and our general impressions, let's give it our beer rankings. Gentlemen, what are your rankings? I'll start with you, Captain Cash. How many beers would you give this movie? I mean, this is a legitimate classic, right? And it's long, so the worst I can cite this is three beers. And that's mostly because this movie is two hours and change. So if you're just kind of sitting there and drinking along, you can probably drink three beers in that time. But at no point are they suffering beers, but they're also not enjoyment beers either. No, that's fair. I mean, this is a very melancholy movie. Yeah. IT dude, what is your beer ranking? One to six. You know, honestly, I would probably go at least four. I I love this movie. I I saw it for the first time probably about three years ago, and uh, it, it's it's in my library now. It's it's one of those movies where, you know, it it, it does kind of suck at times, and and it has its ups and downs, but it has such a warm ending and such a wonderful feeling that it gives you when it completes that. Uh, I would drink those four beers happily and just sit there for the two hours and 20 minutes and enjoy every moment of it. There's a payoff and a sticking the landing for sure. Yeah, no, I I would, uh, yeah, we'll discuss the ending later. Mayor McCheese, what is your beer rating? I mean, this might be a first for me. I'm, I guess I have to give it one. I'd almost give it zero. Um, I mean, again, last night was the first time I watched it. I didn't drink when I watched it. And normally I, try to rank these on pain versus enjoyment beers. I don't, this isn't something I need to drink through for the fun of it, like Santa Slay, cause it's hysterical and it's not, it's not something to suffer through. I'm, I mean, I was talking about it with Miss McCheese. This isn't going to be a movie that I watch annually. It's not, that's not in my wheelhouse, but like as someone who watched it as a first time viewer and as someone who might watch it, um, you know, again, in a couple of years or if someone brings it up or it's on TV, like I'm not going to run to the fridge. Like I'm not going to be like, oh, shit, <laughs> it's a wonderful life zone. Let me grab the let me grab the, the hooch. So I, I guess I have to give it one because that's the ranking scale. Uh, but no, I mean, it's a it's a good movie. It's a very good movie. It has it has a message to deliver. It delivers it very well. It just it's not going to be a repeat viewing for me. If it's a repeat viewing, then, yeah, I'm bumping it up to three. It's the anti-Schindler's list. I only got to watch it once, but I get the good feelings. Yeah, and that, I mean that's what we were texting about again last night. Like, I, for a first viewing, like it dragged in probably the first half an hour to forty-five minutes, but I, I finally saw what it was going for in the story building, and like it, it doesn't do a bad job of the story building. It. It has very good, and then I've made fun of it before. I haven't said it on the pod yet, but it, I made the comment that it was almost like Aaron Sorkin wrote it because the dialogue is very fast. It's very good. It's very clever. It has a lot of good jokes, um, and like it, it doesn't hurt to watch it. It's not a nutcracker in the sense that it's painful. It's not a Santa sleigh where it's just stupid. It's a good movie. It's a very good. It's 
one of the probably better movies that I've been part of this pod for. No, fair enough, McCheese. And I, I again, this is by far the oldest movie we've done. Oh, wide margin. Oh, and yeah. Yet this Huge. movie doesn't feel old outside of some of like the references and and, and certain aspects of it. And like, the this, manner of speaking. It does. It transcends, you know, time to a bit, and I think that's really part of its enduring charm. Is it, to the thunderous wizard's point, it does have a progressive take on income and wealth inequality in America. So now that brings us to you, thunderous wizard. What do you give this movie in terms of a beer ranking? Well, it's all enjoyment beers, and I guess you could do three because it is over two hours long. But it's. Uh... Thematically, the movie's important. It's as relevant now as it ever was. and I mean, yeah, there's dated technology and all that stuff, but uh, dated movies are only dated if what they have to say is no longer relevant. And this movie, that's obviously not the case. So three beers because it's two hours, but it's more to just pass the time. Like you're not... I think this is an important movie to see. Having, you know, had spent 37 years, never have seen this movie... And now I finally did. It's like, I probably should have seen that before. But yeah. it was just one of those things. I mean, I'm kind of glad I didn't because you want to talk to somebody about this movie after you watch it, I think. so. I Yeah, I would say this is a profound movie. It really is. It, it's high concept and it delivers on it. Um, and for me, I'm giving it a three enjoyment beer ranking because it is 131 minutes long. So it's actually almost a four-beer movie just based on time alone. But if I'm having that fourth beer, I am bawling during that final scene, for sure. <laughs> like, ninjas are cutting onions somewhere in the room by the time Harry comes home and says, to my big brother George, the richest man in town, boom, Listen, waterworks. Strong men also cry. I was, strong strong I was crying cry. so hard, my wife woke up and said, are you crying? And I was like, yes. <laughs> Am I the only one who didn't cry whatsoever at this movie? I just, I, I saw the ending. And I was like, oh, I've never cried. I, I, I love the movie, but it's I, never brought tears. Yeah, I cried. No, I, I, uh, as an adult, I tear up. Like when I was a yeah. kid and watched this, no. But now, you know, staring down 40, this movie brings a tear to my idea. And every time, and, and, and I know it's coming and it still gets me. Uh -huh. So, <clears throat> yeah, no. I was crying so much so, I then had to watch The Boys to like pretend I was tough again. <laughs> you were crying so much you had to watch Spider-Man 2 to wind down the crying? Oh, man. That's winding the crying up. McCheese, you know what happens when I watch Spider-Man 2. Yeah. I thought that was Spider-Man 3. <laughs> That's a different kind of crying. All right, gentlemen. I think it's time for us to take a break before we dive into our general impressions further. And I'm truly interested in hearing more from you guys since... Mm, two-fifths of the pod had not seen this movie before and i don't think it's on any of you guys's annual rotations so i'm glad we got to do this like you said thunderous wizard this is an interesting movie to talk about so i'm looking forward to that i want to hear what you guys have to say and i wish i had a million dollars hot dog Welcome back, folks, to our 89th episode of Hops and Box Office Flops, brought to you by RevengeOfTheFans.com. This is our third installment in our Hops and Holiday Flop series. We're talking about Frank Capra's Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. 
I am your host, Chumpzilla, and I am, of course, joined by the Thunderous Wizard, Captain Cash, Mary McCheese, and the special guest, the IT Dude. We've covered It's a Wonderful Life's plot, and now we're going to get into our general impressions. I'm not going to lie, I'm kind of excited about this because my math was off earlier. Four-fifths of the pod does not watch this movie on an annual basis, and two of us saw it for the first time this week. So I love this movie. I grew up with it, but I really want to hear what you guys think about it because you obviously don't have the same history with it that I do. I mean, it's good. I, I mean, I feel like that's, that's the overall answer, that it's a very hopeful message and that, you know, it is by and large timeless, even if it is in black and white and they use speech patterns that aren't common amongst American English today. It, it still delivers a message that is you know, still fundamental to who we choose to be as a people or who we hope we are as a people. All right. No, that's fair, Captain Cash. Although I do, you've mentioned it a couple of times now, so I do question why you get hung up on the speech patterns. I think the dialogue in this movie is is quick. It's snappy. The humor still carries through. Like, the jokes aren't dated. It's a little corny. Don't get me wrong. That's where I think it dates itself. But for the most part, it's still pretty funny. It well, most of the people are using that mid-Atlantic accent, you know the hello, I'm from this place. Where I just okay, no, that's fair. The accents yeah, are a little dated. That that that's fair. Yeah, which is okay because that's kind of the the speech pattern for basically all media from nineteen nothing to nineteen sixty. So it's noticeable, yeah, but not 50-ish. in an off-putting or weird way. Well. You know what? In the modern era, we've all been exposed to it thanks to Family Guy. So it doesn't really feel that out of yeah. place anymore. No, like, but it, I one of my favorite movies of all time is 1933's King Kong, which it feels, in terms of uh, dialogue, is much more a product of, of its time than this is. And for a guy who thinks uh, Thor 3 is high art, I'm surprised you're hung up on colloquialisms. <laughs> And you know what? I just realized I want to see a Seth MacFarlane, you know, reboot of It's a Wonderful Life. Maybe where he does all the voices. Can you just do all the voices? I, I kind of want to see most that. Of them. Yeah. He could. Yeah, I mean, I'll jump in since I'm the uh, the second first timer. I, I think I already described it in the last segment. I mean, it's a very good movie. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's going to be one I put into my annual repertoire. It's not going to beat out Die Hard for my favorite holiday classic, but... I'll watch it again at some point in time, and I'll enjoy it again. No, fair. So, yeah, I guess that's a good point you bring up there, McCheese. I, I usually ask this question. Would you guys recommend watching this movie? I mean, I'll go first. I would, 100% yes. It's a great movie. Everyone should see it. And honestly, if you're a Christmas movie person and like to watch a lot of movies around the Christmas time, then this should definitely be in your rotation. You do yourself a disservice by not having seen it once for how much it adds to the American lexicon. The whole concept of, you know, the angel coming by to show this person what their what their life would be like if they never existed is is something that crops up constantly today in sitcoms and other kinds of things. The every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. This is still a huge part of of Western culture, in my opinion. Well, Western, American. U.S., it's American culture. Yeah, Yeah. people don't see this in Europe. I think that's a key point, and I'll bring it up now. This movie is a Christmas movie, 
its pivotal scene takes place on Christmas Eve and there's Christmas stuff in it. But it's not like explicitly like Santa Claus Christmassy. It just happens to happen at Christmas. Okay. But just as it is a Christmas movie, it's also a very American movie. This movie is considered mm. to be one of the most Americana movies of all time. So I'll go to you, IT dude. Do you recommend watching this movie? You know, I, I think this is a movie everybody should see. It, it, it's a fantastic piece of uh, of archival movie history. I, I, I don't think that, that anybody should miss this. Now, I can see why some people might not want to watch it annually. Um, I can understand why some folks might uh, not be one of their favorites. I, I actually love it. And, uh, I mean, I, I'll probably add it to my list right next to Elf. Uh but, you know, it, it's definitely something everyone should see at least once. That's because you have good taste, IT dude. You know it. All right. <laughs> Mayor McCheese, should yeah, you watch uh, this movie? Do you recommend oh, it? Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, I think I'm going to parrot everyone else's comments and my own comments where, personally, it's not a, it's not a rewatcher. Uh, I, I will definitely end up watching it again sometime and probably sometime soon the next year or two. I mean, my, my wife really likes it. Uh, and it, I mean, it's a really good movie. If you haven't seen it, go see it. It's not like it's going to take a lot of time and energy out. Um, and if you like it, enjoy it. However often you like it, I mean, it's up to you. <laughs> oh, that's fair. And just, I think you've already answered this in your previous comments, but I'll put you on the spot again, thunderous wizard. Would you recommend the listener watch this movie? Oh, I mean, yeah. I know my this mom's is, already seen it, but maybe yours hasn't. This is a, a must-see American classic. I kind of, I mean, I regret and I don't regret having not seen it because I think it's important to talk about, which I said. Um, but you got to see this movie. It's This is nominated for Best Picture. Any movie nominated for Best Picture, you should see. Precious. Crash. Yeah. Uh, uh, Crash, Crash won Best Picture. Yeah, I know. Now, wait, now which crash though? The Cronenberg one or the other one? The other one. Now listen, oh, that, you know, you mind. can say what you want, and that movie is obviously paper thin, but it it's not without its merits. But this movie has many, many merits, and I think it's an I think it's an important movie. It's, so I would see it. Now, am I going to watch it every year? Absolutely not. Well, okay. Well, so and, quick, quick fire question yeah. here: McCheese, yeah. are you watching this next year? No, and, and I actually I wanted to link on to the end of Thunderous Wizard's comment. I, I also think this is a decent movie to watch right now um, with what is our country, if you will. And essentially it just shows that maybe, just maybe, you should not be a total piece of shit to everybody. Yeah, like, goodwill is important. Like, even if you don't think yeah. it's getting you anywhere, like, being positive... And the way you positively impact other people goes a lot further than you may ever know. So just be a good person. So here's where I'd like to kind of draw back to what we talked about before, which is this is an allegory, except the allegory is George Bailey is Jesus Christ. You just He's picked selfless. up on that? He's selfish, well, yeah. Yeah. Might be a little extreme. I, I, he's sort of. He's sort of. He is. Christ. He's selfless. He yeah. sacrifices himself multiple times. His desires, his wants. He sacrifices those for the better of those around him. Yes, and it ends up being the right thing to do because it helps everyone, and everyone does better when they work together because they're communists. This is Bernie Sanders' favorite movie. 
He's certainly Jesus-esque in this movie. But didn't we yeah. all learn in he's The Last Crusade that, that, that you know Jesus' name actually starts with H? Herbert. <laughs> yep. Jesus Herbert Christ. <laughs> That's quite Harry, Harry so, the so quick, Savior. Quick fire question, though. So are you watching this again next year, Captain Cash? Uh, real talk. Nah, but that's mostly because I have children who that's are not going to sit through a two-hour and ten-minute film. No, that's fair. <clears throat> Thunder Wizard, you watching this next year? No, I said it. I, I'm probably not. I don't. Uh, I don't need to be crying as much as I was crying last night. It's just not healthy <laughs> for me. And, uh, and you've already told us, it dude, that you've added this to your library. Are, are you going to dust it off again next year, or is once every two to three years good enough for you? You know, honestly, it, it's going to probably work its way in the holidays somewhere between Elf and a Christmas horror story, just because it, it fits in so well. Is that before or after Santa's sleigh? Uh, you know, I actually haven't watched that one. Yeah, you should uh, go out and do that. You should now. do that right now. Really? That good, it's huh? Such, it's such a blocked <sighs> hour. I, uh, right now. Do you have like 80 minutes to kill? Yeah, <laughs> don't do it right now. Do it when you're bored and you have 70, it's not even 80, 70 minutes to kill and you want to watch oh. just a dumb holiday horror movie. Ho, ho, ho. I'll check uh, it out tomorrow night. Drink, drink, drink. All right. All right. No, that's fair. So this movie is technically a flop uh, in it, 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 at the time of its release. I think I'm going to get a pretty universal answer here. Do you guys think this movie deserved a flop? Yeah, hard no, moving on. Yeah, exactly. No, next question. It's strange. So that brings me to my next question. Um, Where did it go wrong? Well, like, why was it not better received? Now, granted, let's just back it up for a second, because the Thunderous Wizard makes an excellent point. It's not like this movie was panned by critics at the time. They didn't know what to do with it. It was still nominated for Best Picture because Frank Capra was a, a big-time director who had you know, a pretty prestigious career at this time, and this didn't hurt his career, but it was not a commercial success, and it wasn't beloved critically at the time of its release. Where did it go wrong, or what do you think caused it to be you know, received in such a mixed way? Well, it, it told the truth. George Bailey's a good guy, and uh, good guys finished last. Not really because he was rich in a lot of other ways, uh, personally, and whatever else. But like, he he's uh, he's not as successful as the biggest asshole in town. Yes, he does a lot of nice things for people, but he's still not personally getting ahead. He's living in life what he thinks is unfulfilled, even though it's not. But it takes a, a divine intervention to realize that. Like, the portrait of America in the the 40s and 50s, particularly in cinema, uh, Western movies are a good example. War movies are a good example. It's all about the righteousness of the ideal of America. And this movie essentially tells the truth that the American dream is bullshit. And the important thing is to be a good person. That doesn't mean you're going to be rich, but you have to love what life gives you. Like, it, it doesn't paint the rosiest picture of capitalism. And that's why I think it wasn't particularly popular at the time because I don't know. Yeah, no, fair enough. Thunder's wizard it dude. What say you? Well, you know, I, I think as much as this movie leaves you with a warm and fuzzy feeling, it's a very dark movie. It's a movie about how somebody never gets what they want. 
he never got to do all of these things. He didn't get to go to college. He was incapable of going to war. You know, it, it's kind of it is is wonderful of a movie as it is. It's kind of a dark movie, and I think when it did shortly there after the war, I think people were kind of done with darkness, and they didn't want to go to that place as much. And as much as it rings true nowadays, I think when it came out, it, it was just a little bit before its time. I agree 100% there. And I think you're picking up on that tonal difference. Like at this point in you know American cinema, it was all about the idealized American dream and the idealized version of American culture. This exactly. movie is more true to reality. And yeah, I don't think that was commercially viable at the time. Post-war people wanted the story of Harry Bailey, not the story of George Bailey. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This, this this movie would have been the story of Harry Bailey uh, if uh, Hollywood had you know gotten what it would, would have wanted commercially out of it, not the story of George, the guy actually holding the town together. Uh, Mayor that McCheese. That literally hit it, Wizard. That was a good one. Yeah. Mayor McCheese. I mean, Criticism, both, thoughts? Well, no, I mean, both of those are very valid points. And, you know, I, I don't know. I can't look back in time and what people wanted to go. One, how many people were really running out to see movies in 1946 who had, what did that cost? Who had the money for it? I mean, I was trying to compare it to something and what actually won the best picture in 1946 was something called the lost weekend, which according to its blurb is literally a movie about a dude who goes on an Epic bender and forgets everything. So (laughs) who knows? What you're telling me is this movie lost to 1946's version of The Hangover? Yeah, essentially. It's, I mean, here, I'll let me see if I can find it. I, I literally just read it, and the the description of it is this dude goes on an epic bender. That's now that is the that is the rundown of the movie. And I don't know, maybe you know, you're coming off of a very terrible war, and you know, my my wife used to work in media, and when they, you know, when things happened, they always thought movies would suffer. But really, movies are always something that strive in times um, of depression or need because it is a it, it's an exca- it's an escape for people. It's somewhere for them to shelve their personal problems and go sit in a theater and stare at a screen and not think about like what is going on in the world around them so maybe this was too heavy because it's coming off of world war ii maybe people just wanted to go to the movies and you know i mean the lost weekend is a dude going on a bender maybe that's what they want to see is some guy acting like a drunken asshole and they don't want to see like the good guy get shit on by capitalism i you know i don't know i I think it's i think it's all timing i think it's all timing because this movie is a classic and i think if it came out 20 years later it wins across the board um quick correction here this was actually put up in 1946 so the best picture that year was the best years of our lives I'm, st- I'm looking at 1946, 1946 Best Picture. Well, that means weekend. it was probably up for the 1947 Oscar. N- no, it, it, it lost to the best years of our lives. Yeah, because if you came out in 46, uh, okay, unless yeah. you came out in January of 46, you'd, you'd be up for the 47 Oscars. 
because they... I was I was one year early, but I'll even yeah. I'll quickly read through the description of that movie, and I guarantee it's got to be something more uplifting than this because people don't want to come it, off it, a rough it, period in their life and go watch a rough movie. Right. Exactly. It, it's the the film is basically about three uh, veterans returning from World War II and uh, getting reaccustomed to. S- and and they're yeah, adjusting to uh, uh, civilian life. Uh, it's it's actually strangely similar. It's an, it's set in a fictional, excuse me, a fictional Midwestern town, and uh, yeah, they they do face challenges integrating back into society. Um, blah 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 blah. It sounds like it's a decent movie, but I I think to your point though, McCheese, your your sentiment is not wrong. It's a much more straightforward, positive narrative where this movie, one, it's non-linear because we get that opening scene that starts, you know, at the point that doesn't come until like an hour and a half into the movie. Like this, there's, this is high concept. And that's where I think it didn't hit with the contemporary audience at the time of its release. It was a high concept fantasy movie. It had a strong moral tale to be told in it. And it's not your traditional like hero's arc. I guess you do have a bit of that like selfless savior aspect to it. I wouldn't say it's a Jesus allegory. Am I using allegory right? I don't even know anymore. Yep, there you but, go. But it is about a man that sacrifices his whole life, and he does it just to get the payoff at the end. Um, so I, he absolves his own sins by by being by sacrificing a little bit along the way. And yeah, and I just think that it didn't. It, it totally. It's a modern movie, like. A lot of the humor in this, I, I see that kind of thing in a movie like Endgame. I'll bring it back to Endgame. Like that's kind of a serious movie. It's got some dark stuff in it. But the Everything Marvel movies, comes back to Endgame. The Marvel movies interject that humor and and into these movies that try to have more serious tones to them. Everything except for Ragnarok, um, which is off the just you know bonkers the whole time. But my point is, I don't think they knew what to do with this movie at the time of its release, and I think that hurt it. I will. Somewhat agree with Chumpzilla and say only this. This movie is what happens when Captain America never gets the superhero soldier serum. Wow. No, you're right. This is this is Steve Rogers if he does it. Jesus fucking Christ. Can we compare this to like actual shit? Not No, well, no like, because this no, is like important stuff in real life. This this is, basically, yes. basically Clarence is Stanley Tucci. Captain America would be a good guy no matter what. Yes, I get that. But yes, like, that's the point. There's like actual like good people out there. But if like, if if Steve like Rogers can't punch Hitler in the face, he can run a building alone. Wait, wait, wait. Here, Thunderous Wizard. What do you, what do you expect from the two guys I, that have I Captain America shields in the background? I need less Marvel references like immediately. Immediately. Honestly, Stanley Tucci is the best part about Captain America First Avenger. Stanley Tucci rocks. I am Tucci Stanley Gang, Tucci, Tucci and Tucci Chris Tucci Evans Peck. Turns out he was a fucking Nazi spy. Get over it. Let's go. <laughs> I'm technically sorry. wasn't Captain America a, a, a Hydra agent? Isn't that what's going on now? Listen, no, mean, no, no. That was about right, three oh. years ago. Kobik fucked with the Cosmic Cube. It's a whole thing. I can explain it, but let's not. I think there's one thing we can all agree on, though. Let's be honest. Pottersville was pretty bitching. Listen, if I'm going to spend like a three-day weekend bender somewhere, definitely Pottersville over over the other place. But still. Yeah, I, I definitely spent a week in Pottersville one night. 
Hey yo, that's I that grew up not there. far from Pottersville, I think. <laughs> yeah, and just I guess geographically speaking, uh, this movie is set somewhere in upstate New York. Uh, there's a lot of references to Rochester and uh, you know, New York City and other mm, Buffalo, for example, because that song "Buffalo Gals" is actually a popular song at the time where they swapped the name of the city, uh, you know, in and out of the song, but the Buffalo version became more popular, I suppose, and was actually recorded. So that's why that's the version we get in the movie. Listener, I want you to know that Chumpzilla said rock Chester. Thank you. <laughs> like I want a rock Chester. I want a rock Chester. Chester New York. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, how, how am I supposed to say that, McCheese? Rochester. Rochester. Rod. Rochester. 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 Not a stone you find in the ground. Not Rochester. Rochester is where you go if you have to fill a brandy glass with a hundred brown. Yeah, brown and a rock. Rod's good for you. Um, Rochester is a city in uh, New York. Rock Lobster is a song by the B-52s. Thank you. Ah, Let's move on. Okay. One night in Pottersville, and the world's your oyster. That's, One night in Pottersville. Yeah. Is it moister than an yeah. oyster? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I got one last question uh, here for you guys. Uh, I want a favorite joke, scene, whatever. Give me something that's memorable from this movie other than the obvious stuff. What, what did you guys like? I'll start with you, Captain Cash. Give me something. So, again, it's been a hot minute since I've watched this movie. The thing that really stuck out to me is the very sci-fi-esque way they introduce God. Like, the first thing I thought of was Futurama. No, that's, like, yeah, no. I see that. I uh, like, it, now that you mention it, yeah. And honestly, I, I really think, you know, as we've been talking about it, I think you need that, because otherwise you've just basically got an hour and 45 minutes of vignettes about what a nice dude George Bailey is and how the world keeps stealing that from him <laughs> until like you, you need the first five minutes of look, we're going to fix this, but watch this dude suffer for the next hour and 40 minutes until we do. That's a really good point because it does signal to you on the front end that, Hey, this is going somewhere. So don't despair. Exactly. Well, that's very fair. Uh, what do you got for us, Thunderous Wizard? What's a memorable? I would have preferred, considering they introduced the angel so late, to just have seen that person throughout the film, watching George Bailey, as opposed to uh, the celestial thing, because it's sort of jarring that this guy just appeared. Like you know, I mean, knowing the movie, you know what it is by that point. But if if you knew nothing about this movie going in, it's just sort of random. That this guy like is just hovering there like a creep on the bridge, staring at him, and then he jumps in the in the river. So if you sprinkle him in throughout the movie, it'd be really great. It'd just be he's basically the watcher, right? Yeah. All right, it dude, what do you got? Give us something we haven't talked about yet. Hey, you know, if you want to talk about something that kind of stuck with me, I, I really like the scene after they got out of the river and they were in that little 
that little uh what was that the bridge house i guess yeah, where like they, a toll booth because the guy's got a little change yeah. belt on so it must have been like a toll bridge or something I, I i enjoyed that scene i i enjoyed the sarcasm from george to to the angel i i, I thought that that was kind of funny i i, I yeah. it, it was very light-hearted moment after such a serious endeavor that it, it kind of lightened the whole mood up a little bit for me no and that was some good dialogue there's some good jokes there like, there's a lot of good dialogue scenes in this movie, as Mary McCheese has pointed out. It really? Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll jump in here. For me, it's anytime George tells off Mr. Potter. God damn it. I love those <laughs> That scenes. was mine. Well, no, and that's fine, because you're right. There's some of the best dialogue in the movie, and it's, it's the only time Mr. Potter really gets, you know, any sort of comeuppance, right? George speaks truth to power. And his dad did too, and and I, I like that because this movie does something else really well too. I mean, it it's self-referential; like stuff pays off, stuff comes back. You see things reflected, uh, you know, from the beginning and the end of the movie. Like it, it's very self-referential in a satisfying way, kind of like the Marvel movies. Oh God, <laughs> um, to to build off that, so we can close this section out. Yeah, sorry, McCheese. I, I didn't mean to steal yours, but no, no. But I, I think building off that, like one of the more powerful ones is the first scene he stands up to Potter when his dad—I don't know if he dies or just has a stroke—but he's off the board. He died. And, he, had a, he had a stroke and he died. Yeah. Okay. And you know everything's kind of ebbing towards giving it straight to Potter, and you know you're you're supposed to kind of infer that at this point George is maybe in his. 18, 19, 20s, right in that age range. Uh, and he said, I mean, that's young. That's young to run a business and stand on a board and stand up to a total bag of shit. But he does it. Like, he sits there. He almost leaves. He almost gives up. And then he comes back and he fights for what's right. And, like, that scene carries a lot of weight when you think about it, especially if you think about it, if you've ever, like, had to go through a situation like that and something you're not prepared for to stand up for good that, you know, you were going to get crushed on and he went for it. And I think that that kind of gets glossed over. It plays into the story, but when you go back and think about it, it, it matters. It matters a decent amount. Yeah, no. And, and to your point, he's 22, 23, I think in the movie continuity at that point, because he's graduated from high school, but he's worked at the building alone for four years before he hopes to go to college. Yeah, and normally so he's a very at, young man standing up to a very powerful man, Mr. Potter, at that point. And those and those little speeches are great. Those little monologues or whatever, fantastic. You know, and again, it's it's a it's uh it plays back into the story building we've been mentioning the whole time, where it builds that you know he is natural good through the whole movie. No matter what happens, he is looking out for yeah. the good of. Not only, I mean, not it, it's not even him. He's looking out for the good of the community and humanity. And yes. that's kind of why you're you're always gung ho on being on his side. He is his brother's keeper. Um, I'll mention it now. This movie was viewed as being anti-banker at the time of its release, and it was that. actually investigated by the FBI allegedly for possibly being communist propaganda. In '46. Yeah. Listen, yeah. listen. In, in, in Upper so, New so, York, so, bank owns you. Yeah, so I, my point is, this movie, to the Thunderous Wizards comment earlier, was pretty progressive for its time. I'm just telling you, they wanted people to believe in American idealism then. 
So to display something where the good guy is the little man beating down the big man who is essentially capitalism manifested is going to make some people angry. This was still, you know, like World War II was a righteous war, right? We then proceeded to participate in several wars that were very unrighteous and people got smart to that. And we're like, what are we doing? They didn't want people to ever think that way. So to even yeah, like put well, this kernel of thought into a person's mind that eh, maybe capitalism's bad, maybe having greedy people who control everything is bad, not a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that this movie is a tad subversive in that sense, and that's probably why it gained much more traction in the 70s uh, when, when it was, you know, aired on TV after falling into the public domain. For free. So, <laughs> yep, exactly, that helps. But uh, anyway... I think it's time to grab another uh, Tropicalia here from Creature Comforts and take a break. Listeners, we'll be right back. I wish I had a million dollars. Hee-haw! Drink. Sorry. Hee-haw! Hot dog. Whatever. Welcome back to Hops and Box Office Flops. It's time for our Pottersville Trivia Challenge. And the chime-in phrase tonight will be, hee-haw! Drink. Are you guys okay with that? Yes. Hee-haw! Drink. Drink. Standard format, five questions, multiple choice. Gentlemen, are you ready? Ready. As ready as I'll ever be. Until I kill myself, Clarence. Hee-haw! I can't tell if you're Jimmy Stewart or a really drunk Sean Connery anymore, so... I can do both. Russian. 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 I can, I can do both of the combination of Jimmy Stewart and Sean Connery sound something like this. I'm here for this. Now, okay. the real question, though, is that Jimmy Stewart doing a, a Sean Connery impression? Or is it Sean Connery doing a Jimmy Stewart impression? Oh, that's clearly Connery doing Stewart. See, I'd have said the other way around because I feel like Connery basically is always just Connery. And he's a top, so that helps. But anyway. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Question number one. Viola Bondi has played Jimmy Stewart's mother in multiple films. How many times has she done it? Is it A, twice? Is it B, four times? C, five times? Or D, six times? Yeehaw. <laughs> IT dude. Drink. Six. Ooh. You are wrong, sir. Hee-haw! Hee-haw! Uh, Captain Cash, can you steal? Five. Five is the correct answer. Can you, can you name them? Uh, I can do Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. That's one this for sure. Uh, and after that, no. I got, I got but, two. Yeah, but those are the two most notable. I think the rest of them are probably some of his lesser-known movies. Okay, well, that's one point for Captain Cash, and that brings us to question number two. Mr. Potter offers George a job with a salary of $20,000 a year. What does that roughly translate to in today's dollars? And I know there's some people on the pod that probably have a good idea about what this answer is. I am going with the higher estimate you may find. Okay. Is it A, $150,000 a year? Is it B, $225,000 a year? Is it C, $370,000 a year or D, a cool 
half a million a year. Yeah. That's Captain Cash again. That was a close one, guys. I'm not gonna lie, but I think C. Captain Cash got it. C. It is C. It is, by some estimates, approximately three hundred and seventy thousand dollars a year. I've seen some as low as two sixty, whatever. But I'm going with the higher number because that's the one I found. I'm throwing my red challenge flag simply because we did this math earlier in the pod, and there's no way he would have gotten that answer right. I mean, <laughs> maybe help. I it, did it, my research. It, it, it might have been a spoiled question, but you know what? Sorry, All fair in love and war. I'm this sorry. is a podcast. Cheat to win is allowed. Yeah, that's, that, that is true. Allow me to quote the warrior poet Mark Wahlberg when I say, maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe go fuck yourself. <laughs> and I'd like to point out that we just had a call for fair play from the Thunderous Wizard, who to me multiple times in college stated there's no such thing as fighting dirty. There's only fighting to win. That's, I mean, that's true. That is true. That is true. Okay, well, Captain Cash has have, is developed somewhat of a commanding lead here with two correct answers. We're now at question number three. I, w- I would like an asterisk put on that second one, though. Yeah, at least... We'll take that into consideration and we will make a judgment at a later date. Question number three, which character's name in this movie inspired a 90s alternative rock band's name? Oh, son of a bitch. Yeehaw. Oh, Oh, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let him go. Yeah. Let me get the answers out. Is it A, Clarence Oddbody? Is it B, Mr. Martini? Is it C... Mr. Potter, or is it D, Zuzu Bailey? Yeehaw. <laughs> IT dude. It would be Zuzu with Zuzu's Pedals. That is correct. Zuzu's Pedals is a 90s alternative rock band. Can, can, can you name one song by this band? Uh, the Ballad of Cinderella, I think. I was listening to it earlier because I heard the name of the band before, and when I heard the line in the movie, it, it rang in my head that I'd heard that name as a band, but it's god-awful. Don't yeah, they're, they're kind of like the Breeders. It's a it's a all-female alternative rock band. Um, Which doesn't make it bad. So the Deal Sisters from Huber Heights, Ohio, Huber Heights, Wayne, represent the Breeders, Cannonball, Spike Jones. Who would have okay. thought that we'd get two Breeders references on this pod? <laughs> I know, but I mean, by the time we all die, there's going to be at least seven more because Trumpzilla is never going to give up on repping the breeder. Also, can we point out how close George Bailey is to murdering his entire family in that scene? Like, he's, he's really close. Super unhinged. Yeah, it's that's really even. uncomfortable. He just went around choking them all out. I would have not thought anything different. He was very close to slapping Donna Reed around in an uncomfortable way. Um, I was about to say, this, this movie could have ended at 145 with the same thing that happened in high tension. I'd be like, well, that, that's something. I, I thought this was going straight in the mist. Um, I will point out, because we did mention it previously in the pod, that the Zuzu's Petals reference is another one of the signs that George is in the different timeline. Um, his daughter brings a flower home from school because, she, and she doesn't want it to get crushed or whatever. So she doesn't button her jacket. She gets a cold. He gets upset. Yada, yada, yada. A couple of the petals fell off and she asked him to paste them on. And of course, being a good parent, he knows to pick his battle. So he lies to her and says he's pasted them on and hands it back to her. Meanwhile, he hides the loose petals in his pocket. So once he crosses over into the alternative timeline, he no longer has the petals in his pocket. Another sign that he is not in his normal uh, reality. Lobbying for a new grunge band name. 
pedals in my pocket. Pedals in my pocket. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't mention that. Or so George Bailey, alcoholic. That's, that's that's the new grunge band name. We now spent more time talking about Zuzu's pedals than they spent time making music. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Well, we've now got somewhat of a competition. That's one point for the IT dude, two points for Captain Cash, and we're on question number four. Jimmy Stewart is on the record saying that George Bailey was his favorite role to play. But he said that It's a Wonderful Life is not the favorite movie that he has starred in, or not his favorite movie that he starred in. What movie is his favorite? Is it A, Harvey? Is it B, The Philadelphia Story, the one without AIDS? Is it C, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, or D, Vertigo? Hee-haw. Captain Cash. Harvey. It is Harvey. He's not, uh, is he in Vertigo? I really like Harvey. It's a yeah, he's in Vertigo. Oh, it's North by Northwest with the plane, isn't it? Yeah, that's big, that's a different uh, one. Invisible yeah. Rabbit. Oddly enough, he's also in Troy. He's the big dude. No, 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 <laughs> no. Bringing it back. No, I thought. Wait, wasn't which? What's the one? All the guys from John Carter from Mars was in. Tyler Maine. Rome. Whatever. Okay, Captain Cash, you've got a pretty commanding lead at this point. I. No one can beat you, so number five is just for pride here. It is three points for Captain Cash, one point for the IT dude, Thunderous Wizard, and McCheese, where are you guys at? Come on, goose eggs. Let's go, gentlemen. Question number five. It's a Wonderful Life was nominated for five Oscars, and it did take home an Academy Award. In what category did it bring home the trophy? Was it A, Best Actor? Was it B, Best Sound Recording? Was it C, Best Film Editing? Was it D, Best Picture? Was it E, Best Director? Or F, a Technical Achievement Award? Yeah, yeah. That goes to Mayor McCheese. I'm going to go with B. B, Best Sound Recording. It did not win that. Ah, uh, yeah. Closer than you would think, though. Uh, I believe that would be the IT dude in for the steal. Well... I I would say F, technical achievement because of the snow, wouldn't it? That is correct. They were awarded a technical achievement award because they developed a new type of movie snow. Prior to this film, they had used painted cornflakes. Oh, no. Which was extremely loud, and all of the dialogue had to be dubbed over when they used it. They developed some sort of, like, you know, melamine foam or some kind of synthetic uh, uh, material they could use that was silent, and that allowed Frank Capra to film all the outdoor scenes in the snow with the actual native dialogue and sound recordings. They didn't have to dub over it because the stuff was quiet. Extremely loud and extremely delicious. And lead-filled. I would like to say that uh, you are the winner, uh, Captain Cash. Congratulations. You barely eked it out. You got a strong push from the IT dude, but you skunked Mayor McCheese and the Thunderous Wizard. So congratulations. Uh, Terrible. I don't have a prize for you because uh, I rent a home in one of Potter's slums. So I just don't have anything to spare. Uh, I'm sorry. I, 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 I want you to understand that uh, oh, being God. part of the quiz is its own award. And being okay, able okay, to be Sean Connery, that's enough. That's enough. <coughs> the ghost of Sean I, I do kind of go yeah. Seanery. That's my bad. 
So, Made him some cornflakes and send them over. Yeah, we'll get you some lead lead laden cornflakes. Yeah, right. <laughs> now here here's your prize. I got it. Uncle Billy's gonna bring you eight thousand dollars. Have fun. <laughs> if he doesn't lose it on the way over. That's the oh, point of the joke. That's the joke. Don't explain it. Hacha, the aristocrats. Uh yeah. So we've talked about movies with great endings before, and we've kind of commented how this movie does stick the landing. Ah, and it's pretty inspirational. It's a pretty good feel-good ending. I would put it up there with, like, the Shawshank Redemption in terms of satisfying endings of a movie. It's not, like, super complicated, but it's very emotionally satisfying. Like, you are very happy to see George at ease and to see everyone in the town showing their support for him. Like, it does feel really good at the end of this movie. It's like the antithesis of the mist like this is the anti-mist ending of a movie and uh you know so i think that brings us to recommendations as always i am selfish and i will go first i recommend everyone watch this movie i feel like not everyone has seen it obviously based on the uh the panel here on the pod we had two folks on that hadn't seen it before so i think there's probably several folks out there that haven't seen it as well do it and if you've got kids I would say, you know, introduce this movie to your children. Yeah, it's a movie everyone in America should see. And if you don't, if you don't bring it to your kids, they're probably not going to find it uh, on their TikToks and whatnot. I, so. I would say, I would say, depending on age, my kids are too young to even oh, understand yeah, this yeah. thing. But yeah, 100%. I mean, like my brother's kids who we just watched Die Hard with, I think they could watch this movie and actually get something out of it. When the time comes, much like my father did with me, make your age-appropriate children watch this movie. That's a very good point, Mary Cheese. Your five-year-old's not going to sit through this thing. No, I mean, they don't give it. I mean, then that, I, I'll jump in now. That, I mean, my recommendation has always been this entire month to just throw out movies that uh, kids would like for the holidays. And I'm <clears throat> running into a loss because I'm just going to go to the two that we watch on loop now, which is <clears throat> the Benedict Cumberbatch, Benedict Cumberbatch Grinch which uh, my kids are obsessed fine. with. Fine. And well, they love the original Grinch, but this one's longer, so it works better, especially when I'm trying to buy time. And there's two Mickey Christmas movies that are on Disney Plus that are like an hour and a half long that are just great because they get my kids to stop screaming at me. So that's my... I'm phoning it in this week, but if you have little kids between the ages of two and I'd say seven... Uh, any of those four movies will get you slightly more alone adult time while they hang out with the digital babysitter. Hey, no, that's very fair, uh, McCheese. It's important at this time of the year that we find a way to distract our children so we can have some adult time. So good recommendation. Thunderous Wizard, what's your recommendation for the pod? Uh, I'm sticking with Christmas movies, but because everybody watches Die Hard yearly, I do. Uh, Obviously, Mary Cheese does. I'm recommending Die Hard 2, which is essentially Die Hard if it wasn't as good, but it was still fun enough to watch. Also, it's really a Christmas also movie. Also a Christmas movie. Only, also a Christmas movie. Only entitled, because unlike Die Hard, there's almost no Christmas stuff to speak of in Die Hard 2, except for a crowded airport. And snow. It's snow, so it's Christmas. Yeah. It's snow. It counts. There is also a bare-ass... Uh, Bill Sandler, so I feel like that counts. Uh, he's doing Naked Tai Chi. Uh, it's pretty great. 
and I recommend Die Hard too. I do. I think you'll enjoy it, and it sort of redeems uh, Rennie Harland, who was a pod punching bag for his god awful pirate Oof. movie Cutthroat Island. Oof. And that Again, actually came before it's not Cutthroat Island. a great Island. pirate movie. It's not a terrible pirate movie. So, no, it's a terrible pirate movie. <laughs> it's a terrible pirate movie. Better movie with naked Tai Chi in it. Die Hard 2 or Mallrats? Mall Die Hard 2. Mallrats. Michael Hard Rooker two. for the win. Rook, I will tell you listen, this. Rooker butt. Yeah. Have you seen Mary Poppins' ass? I have. I think uh, Sadler would best Rooker in a naked Tai Chi fight. In an ass off? Wait. Yeah. Anyway. IT dude, we got a recommendation for us. Throw something out there. What should our listener, i.e., our mothers, basically uh, watch, listen to, consume in forms of media or something? You know, I would honestly give uh, one of uh, my wife and I's favorite uh, Christmas movies. You you don't want to watch this with children probably under the age of six. Uh, but if you want something with a nice, wonderful ending that'll that'll warm your heart and bring everything back, I would definitely say go for a Christmas horror story. Uh, it's one that probably hasn't gotten much advertisement through the world, but it is an absolutely wonderful Christmas watch if you like things on a little bit of a darker edge. I can't say that I'm familiar. What can you tell us about that? Because that one's, uh, I'm drawing a blank. Well, it, it's its a mixture of uh, short stories where it's, it's one of those things where you have several short stories where everything kind of ties back together with, with itself. And you have a narrator, which is, uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it, but a, a famous person who everybody will recognize is, is going to be the radio host that's hosting uh, the Christmas radio show throughout all of these little different stories that is happening. Okay. Is it James Conn? Is it James Conn? I want to ask now. No, it's, it's James Woods. <laughs> no, it's neither. It's a horror anthology in the form of creep show or such things, yes? Is it Steve? Stephen I, King? Is it Michael Myers? It, <laughs> Who is it? it? it Steve Gutenberg. It's, it's William Shatner. William Shatner is the radio host that, that's narrating through this town where all these different little Christmas horror stories are happening. Okay. So it's like a series of vignettes that are loosely tied together. Exactly. Gotcha. But it all so, kind of culminates at the end with a story that follows through the entire thing. It, it, it's it's disturbing, but quite I, I've got it. Santa Goldberg shows up at the end, spears William Shatner and throws him down a hell hole on a oh curling. Oh my god. What what's up with y'all between the Marvel and the wrestling references? <laughs> oh you gotta watch Santa Slay. But no, so it's, it's I about, to get, it's about oh. to get deeper. Is there any chance that we could sub out Shatner for Jeff Goldblum? <laughs> oh yeah, that's, that's some inside baseball. But so, hey, uh, it yeah. dude, where can we find this Christmas horror movie? Uh, that's a damn good question. Um, it, it might still be on Netflix. I haven't actually checked because I have it in my personal library. Okay. Um, I, I What's it called? I'll look real Netflix. It, yeah. It's called a Christmas horror story. A Christmas horror story. All right, that's 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 a deep pull. I am I have never heard of that. And, it's interesting. Yeah, well, we did Santa Slay, so that's right in our wheelhouse. Oh, the, I'm sure um, this is going to be much better than Santa Slay. <laughs> yes, say that. It, and it yeah. says it might. I mean, I'll have to double check, but it may be on Prime. Oh, or, okay. or it's you know four bucks to rent. So, 
All right. Well, that's a good recommendation, IT dude. We'll check that out. Hopefully, we can find it on Prime. So that brings us to you, Captain Cash. What is your recommendation for this pod? And I swear to God, I will beat you with a rubber hose if you say DuckTales. Now, listen, I, I recommended DuckTales like the last time, and then it got canceled. So I'm going to recommend a different series also on Prime that is also technically canceled after next season, which is The Expanse. It's back. It's season five. It's fucking great. But I know I've, I've, I've recommended that before. So my other recommendation is going to be Santa Jaws. That's exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's a shark that wears a Santa hat that eats people. Santa Jaws, also on Prime. Okay, I think that works, technically. I think that brings so, us to a close. <laughs> yeah, that, that brings our It's a Wonderful Life pod to a close. Thunderous Wizard, what do we have to look forward to on our next Hops and Holiday Flops podcast? This particular pod, as you will notice, listeners, is going to drop on Christmas. So our final pod will then drop on New Year's Day, which means we're watching the fucking god-awful movie New Year's Eve. I hate you for that. See, I finally bring us a good movie to do, and then the Thunderous Wizard drops that shit on us. Had to be done. Fuck yeah. your synergy. Yeah. So I've never seen that movie before, so I'll, I'll I'll be the virgin for that one. It's free on HBO Max. Watch it now. I'm looking up it now. I don't think I've Can seen it. Can I get it, it oh, on it's... Peacock? Oh, it's complete rom-com. shite. Definitely oh, on yeah. Peacock. It's full of famous people. It's awful. Is it like Love oh, Actually, but shite. New Year's Eve? No. Yeah, Love Actually no, but is fantastic. But much worse. It's New like, Year's Eve no, It's like Valentine's Day, but New Year's Eve. That's exactly yeah. right. He did. Hey, Zach they did three Michelle of these movies. There was sense. Valentine's Day, New Year's Eve, Mother's Day, and they're all hot garbage. Ugh. Ashton Kutcher, Jessica Biel, Robert De Niro, Sarah Jessica Parker. Jesus Christ! I, what is this movie? I smell Brett Ratner's rat fucking on this. This sounds awful. There's something on okay. it. Okay. Well, yeah, folks, this is, uh, this is not good. Yes, pray for us as we go forward with New Year's Eve. This sounds awful. But to close the pod, I wanted to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, you wonderful old podcast. And remember, listeners, no man is a failure who has friends. We here at Hops and Box Office Flops wish you and your family the best this holiday season. Hee-haw! Hee-haw, drink. <laughs> <laughs>